All right, um, it's Sunday school time, so we got to get started. If you're uh, sticking around, uh, have a seat. And there's handouts coming around if you want them, take it. So uh, I don't know where he'll probably put the rest in the back seat somewhere. So. <clears throat> All right, so, uh, well, let's get started. Let's open in prayer real quick. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a wonderful uh, Sunday. Uh, again, the best day of the week that we can come and worship you and and hear your great gospel of grace every 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 Sunday, Lord, in, in sermons that Chris gives and the elders give and the guest speakers give. Lord, I pray that this morning as we uh, look at your next covenant here, the Noahic covenant, that you will uh, guide our thoughts, guide our um, guide our discussions, guide our thinking. I also pray, Lord, that through it all we'll see, uh, we'll see in Noah, Lord, a, a great uh, illustration and uh, the type of Christ, Lord, in you. In your name I pray. Amen. Cool. So I'm going to uh, just do a brief recap here. Um, since I've been doing this, we've gone through three covenants. And these three covenants are kind of the big, broad, mega covenants of the, of the Bible. The covenant of redemption, which was the covenant made in eternity between the Father, Son, Holy Spirit to redeem a people unto himself. And out of that major covenant comes the covenant of works, which was God's covenant, original covenant with Adam to... Uh, to, uh, uh, well, it was a covenant unto life. But it was covenant unto life, but it was required that Adam obey uh, the law perfectly in order to achieve that life. Uh, Adam broke that law, and now we are, and therefore God made a uh, third covenant, this mega covenant called the covenant of grace, which we covered last week, which was God's covenant which where he sends a redeemer, uh, a mediator to... Uh, fill the gap, to fulfill that covenant of works for us so that we could uh, enter into heaven with him. So, um, also, I, just, I don't know if too many of you guys know this. I am, none of this stuff's coming originally out of my head. Most of it's coming, <laughs> coming from this book right here. So uh, I just wanted you to know that uh, the handouts and stuff that I'm giving you is coming mostly from this book. I'm just kind of summarizing what the book says for those who don't have time to read it or, or whatever. And you also give you a brief introduction to covenant theology. So... So before we get going, I thought in this case, I'd actually, since we're getting into the specific covenants, Noahic covenant, and from here on out we'll be covering different covenants uh, God made specifically with people, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and the Israelites, and uh, on to the new covenant. Uh, I thought I'd actually read the chapter or the, the passages out of Genesis first before we get into this. So... Uh, Genesis chapter 6 is where I'm going to uh, start briefly. I'm not going to read all, all 6 or 7. I'm just uh, cha- uh, starting verse 5. I kind of wanted to give you the background a little bit of what's going on here. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
And then verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now I'm going to just skip ahead. Um, basically, we get the flood account going on here. Uh, the flood subsides, and then God makes his covenant with Noah in uh, chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every bird or clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I, and as I gave them... Uh, gave. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from every man. And as fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. But God made, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with them, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you and the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out from the ark is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign in the of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of the flesh and every, all the water. Uh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. All right, so that's kind of the covenant or the account of Noah a little bit there, and abbreviated. So as we see here, God is... Uh, God saw the wickedness of man on the earth. He basically sent a flood, basically destroy all the earth. And this covenant that God makes with Noah now is is a covenant that He will never again uh, do that again. So, so um, I'm going to kind of go ahead here a little bit. So the Noahic covenant is crucial to the biblical understanding of the world and is a necessary part of covenant theology. It's oftentimes ignored when we talk about covenant theology because it's it's not really a redemptive covenant. It's a non-redemptive covenant. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But it is an important aspect because this, uh, this covenant of common grace, as it's oftentimes called, is necessary in order to fulfill the covenant or the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15. So, uh, going ahead, uh, 
So I just mentioned about common grace. So I'm going to kind of go into that a little bit. Uh, common grace, I, is anybody familiar with that subject or topic? You want to give me a definition if you, if you know what it is? Excellent. Very good. So basically, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or non-Christian. Uh, God's shedding uh, grace, giving blessings, air to breathe, uh, rain uh, to water your plants, etc. Every blessing that God gives, which really is undeserved, that's kind of the definition of grace, going to under, or, uh, unmerited grace towards sinners who don't deserve anything. God's giving this grace kind of to everybody. So, I mean... Uh, Rain, uh, food, uh, friends, uh, families, etc. So, it's labeled con- common in contrast to special because it's uh, a special grace is, is given to the uh, uh, special grace is not given to the world in general, and that basically talking about regeneration, justification, adoption, etc. So, in his common grace, he, again, he, provi- he provides, but he also prevents. He kind of restrains sin from getting too far out of control. Um, uh, again, we see that in Luke eleven thirteen. You then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. So basically, he holds back sin. He doesn't. We have this doctrine in uh, Reformed theology called total depravity, which doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be, but you're as bad off as, it, as you could be. And basically, God is restraining sin so that. Even even our uh, our uh, neighbors and stuff who aren't Christians, they aren't always as depraved as they possibly be. You know, they know how to do good things, at least on a, a worldly, civil level, on that, in that in that regard. So anyway, the Noahic covenant gives the kind of the foundation for all these things. So again, a quick definition of the Noahic covenant is God's covenant of common grace with the earth despite mankind's depravity to sustain its order until the consummation. In the Noahic covenant, we see the severity of God's justice, the sweetness of God's grace, and the promise to preserve the world. So how does this connect to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace? Okay, for, for the sake of the covenant of grace, he establishes this covenant of common grace. He puts it in a place to reserve the world from the wrath of God as he did in the flood. So, you know, the thing is, God doesn't forget, you know, both good and bad. Um, he's remembering all my sins, all, everybody's sins, all the evil in the world, which is kind of a bad thing when you think about it. But he also, it's also good that he doesn't forget because he also remembers his promises he made. And that major promise that he made in Genesis 3.15, that he would send the Messiah. So he wiped out all the earth at one time, which he could fully do, and he's fully right to do, uh, that promise that he made in Genesis 3.15 when it would go unfulfilled. So the flood is also a sign, as we see in Second Peter 3, 5-7, it calls it a sign. And so what's it a sign of? Uh, again, we're, we'll get into this a little bit later in the, in the talk, but it's a forecast a day when God would judge the world in righteousness. And it also tells how he will save his people by his grace, through a righteous man of his own choosing, who will do the will of God and deliver his people from the wrath of God and then bring them into a new heavens and a new earth. So basically this, this teaches us also, even though it's a non-redemptive covenant, it also teaches us about our Lord and Savior, who we see a very par- uh, parallel between Christ and Noah oftentimes in this. 
So what is Bible cheese? I begin with uh, Genesis 6, a little bit of it. And Genesis 6 through 8, 19 is kind of the flood account. And kind of the major themes in that is that sin is an offense against God. And we see the sin was growing. Uh, the godly line of Seth was being married with the ungodly line of uh, well, Satan's seed, the godly line, the woman, and the Satan's seed were being uh, intermixed. So the sin was increasing in the world. That God came to a point where, he, I mean, you know, he's, uh, uh, he's uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's grieved, I guess, that he actually created man. So that's how bad sin was getting there. So God will show his, uh, also another thing we see in that God will show his grace to his people. And his people, in this case, happens to be Noah and his, and his family with him. This grace will come through one who is righteous, again, Noah. He will save his people from the wrath to come. And he will preserve the world until the day of his wrath. So again, we see the spread of sin and the problem being sin. Uh, The solution was grace. Noah, who was a righteous and blameless man, he wasn't righteous and blameless in the in the absolute sense, like Christ was righteous and blameless. But he's, uh, he was a type of righteousness and blameless of Christ. So in Hebrews, and that righteousness and blamelessness came basically by faith in Christ. And we see that in Hebrews eleven seven it says, "By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household." By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So anyway, this inward grace that he received by trusting in Christ made an outward distinction between Noah and his contemporaries. The world was wicked, but Noah was righteous. Also, there's kind of this kingdom-building aspect going on, and we don't, I'm not going to probably get into this too much because um, a lot of theologians will talk about it, but this whole idea of this ark was kind of a, a, a mini-temple, I guess. I see a lot of parallels between the ark and the temple that was the temporal tabernacle in various ways. Anyway, I think that what they're trying to imply here that, that this ark was kind of a mini-temple, a mini um, Many church, I guess you could say, of God at the time, with Noah being kind of like the Christ figure. Well, you also see in the book uh, in the uh, story of Noah kind of parallels to the book of Exodus. It has a lot of similarities to the flood account. You know, Moses is put in that tiny ark, and the Septuagint, the Greek word there used, is the same word used as Noah's ark. So we kind of see that parallel. Moses and Israel pass through the sea, but their enemies are destroyed again. The flood account, um, uh, and they also comes to Mount Sinai, whereas Noah, or Noah's ark rested on Mount Ararat. Anyway. So again, we see the remnants are saved. Noah had a son, however, Ham, who was not elect, but yet he was also saved. So also we see that the wheat and the tares are always, always, always together. You can't quite separate them all the, uh, as easily as we like. So that's why the church is always made up of both um, those who are truly believers and those who profess faith in Christ that may not yet have fully believed yet. So the ark was a special place of God's saving presence. It's appointed to the day when the wolf and the lamb would lie down together. So notice also that the animals kind of dwelt peacefully within the ark. So that's kind of a prelude to this uh, prophecy that would be fulfilled. And this place of salvation was rejected by the world. So Noah was a preacher of righteousness, we see in 2 Peter 2.5. But the world was basically rejecting this, uh, this refuge that could have possibly been given to them. All right. I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit. So kind of the application we see throughout all this is that the sovereign Lord who brought Noah through the flood 
and Israel through the sea is your covenant-making and covenant-keeping Father, who set his love on you before time began, covenanting with uh, the Son and Spirit to save you. So basically, if God is for you, who can be against you? And then after the flood, we kind of see this recreation event going on. So, I mean, we had this uh, creation event going on in Genesis, this kind of... Uh, this, um, this kind of purging of the world, so this decreation event went, took place. And after the flood, we see this recreation event going on again, where the water subsides, the earth is renewed, made habitable, habitable again. It's kind of reminiscent of the creation week. Noah and his sons were given commissions like Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. However, the new world still had the same old problem. Noah still had sacrifice to approach God. The sin that we see that God caused God to uh, to uh, uh, deluge the world was also there, right there in the promise in 820, that even though he saw the wickedness of men in their hearts, so that same problem is still going through. So basically the the, the, the theology that we see in Genesis is 1 through 4 or 5 and so on. is still there, still in play. We're still going through. Noah is, a, again, a type of Christ who's pointing us to Christ, or pointing us to Christ. And it's also this, this covenant is given as a, a common grace covenant so that we can actually have a place to stand on, that Christ would have a place to stand on in order to uh, fulfill the role that he, that he, uh, that he would come to do. Uh, then we get to Genesis 8:20 20 through 22, and we see the flood account closes again with 8, 15 through 19. And then 20 to 22, I'm going to reread these again. This says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on an altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So what's noteworthy about God's statement? Well, one, it makes a promise with two points. God won't destroy the earth because of man. Therefore, he's vowing never to judge the earth with water again. And God's promising to preserve the normal cycle of seasons. So animals will live, uphold the environment, change of seasons will continue, rain, uh, rain to make seeds grow, and passage of, uh, passage of time through day and night. second thing you notice is that God made a promise despite humanity's depravity. We see again that the intention of human heart is still evil from his youth. So in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 6-5, we saw that the reason for the flood was evil of man's heart. And man is no better after the flood than before, so God is keeping his promise not to, uh, uh, to be dependent on man's performance. So righteous or wicked will live side by side till God consummates the uh, end of history. And the third thing we see is God made his promise in his heart. Now, this is, I'm kind of going for right by this book, and um, kind of sure the statement was not heard by Noah. It's only audible in heaven, they say. I'm not really following what they're exactly getting at there. But I think it's important to note that I think what they're trying to get at is that this is born out of the equivalent content between the covenant confirmation made in 9, 8 through 17, where the actual covenant is made, and the promise that's made here in 8, 21 through 22. So it demonstrates how scripture uses the idea of a covenant, which is a promise from God with no overt covenantal context, still has a covenantal character. So the parties of the covenant. Um, again, a covenant is made between at least two parties, maybe oftentimes more, but the first party obviously here is God. God's unilaterally making this 
promise. The second party, however, is multiple people. I mean, it's got Noah, his descendants, the animals, and basically the earth in general. And all these things are, all these uh, parties are named over and over again in different ways in verses 10, 12, 13, and so on. So it's a, unmistakable, because it's made with both the righteous and the wicked, um, it's unmistakable that this really is a common covenant. It's a covenant with all the earth, with all living animals. It's not to the saved, uh, not to save the second party from sin. This, again, it's non-redemptive, but to reserve the natural order so that life can continue. And then we're also given a sign of the covenant. Like most covenants in the Bible, there's usually a sign given. Uh, this one is no exception. The sign of this covenant is a rainbow, which is a very common covenant. We see it all the time. Um, and because it's a common covenant, it's, uh, uh, everybody, God only makes a, gives a sign to the people whom the covenant is supposed to, uh, who, who are part of the, uh, the covenant community, I guess you could say. So in this case, this covenant is given to all people. All people see this rainbow constantly throughout uh, whenever it rains or, or whenever. And I think what's kind of cool to think about is that this covenant was, uh, this sign is given so that God would remember that he would not deluge the world and destroy it again. So every time we kind of look at this covenant, or this covenant sign, this, uh, God's also looking at it. He's remembering the promise that he made not to deluge this world again and destroy it, at least until he comes in the second, second coming. So I think that's kind of a remarkable thing to remember. And it's also symbolic. Um, a pastor, I think, talked about this in his sermons. Again, we talked about most of these things in Genesis 1 through 11 and, uh, and uh, over the summer when Chris and some of the elders were preaching over these chapters. Um, he says kind of represents this horizontal position that, you know, if it was in vertical position, God's going into battle. But because it's on a horizontal position, God's at rest now. That's one possible interpretation. The other possible interpretation is that the rainbow being kind of an arc, kind of representing the firmament, kind of as a dome, kind of holding back the water. So it kind of reminds that this waters will never come again to destroy the world. No one knows for sure if either one of those are a thing, but in any event, the sign is given uh, that reminds us that the, rain, that the flood waters would never again come and deluge the world. So we also see terms of this covenant. Um, actually, there are no terms of the covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. God made it. He'll, he'll, uh, he'll keep it, and it doesn't matter how wicked or good people are in this world. So basically when he sees that bow, um, he'll remember his covenant and, and, and promise to sustain us through this. And it's unbreakable because there are no conditional terms. Regulations of the covenant. Okay, um, this is a little tricky. Uh, Meredith Klein says the regulations governing mankind's conduct were included, but no commitments were exacted from man on which the continuance of the covenant itself of individual membership therein might be dependent. In other words, the, there's are, there are kind of regulations of this covenant, and we'll talk about those in a second, but uh, it wasn't dependent upon them keeping these regulations. God unilaterally made this covenant that even if you didn't keep any of these regulations, he was still going to sustain this world. So, But he does give regulations that uh, uh, impose regulations to find how God governs and, and how man should act. Yet the existence of the covenant is not dependent upon man's fidelity to the regulations. So those regulations are found in Genesis 9, 1 through 7. Um, God calls Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply. Again, that's kind of a reminiscent of the phrase given, or the command given back in Genesis 1 where God called them to be fruitful and multiply to fulfill the um, cultural mandate. Um, then number, uh, number two, God gives Noah all things for food, plant, and animals. So he's kind of 
breaking down this clean unclean barrier. And kind of a corollary to that is uh, is the idea that God also creates uh, that work is a good thing. God, you know, obviously, to cultivate the earth and to have animals, you have to have shepherds and uh, farmers and all that. So God kind of establishes this work ethic at the same time as a corollary to giving Noah all these uh, all these things as food. And the third thing that God declares that whoever sheds the blood of man by this uh, uh, by by this by man his blood shall be shed. So murder is wrong, and man has a right and a responsibility to punish murderers with capital punishment. You know, there's debate in the Christian community where that where that fits in. But I think what's kind of important to see here is that God's kind of establishing this uh, this uh, this uh, governmental system that we uh, we, we would operate under. Um, however, you want to interpret that, so there's this government system that's going on. So if you look at all three of these things, this fruitfulness kind of covers the realm of family and marriage to be to, uh, in, in that aspect. The food realm kind of uh, under that of vocation, the enjoyment of good things, and murder the area of state and society. And we see that Christians and non-Christians participate in these arenas, and it's necessary for preserving human society. So in order for human society to flourish and, and uh, to grow, we kind of need kind of some semblance of order within all these things. And I kind of see that being established here in this this common grace covenant. And we also see continuity of the pre-flood creation. So the command to be fruitful and multiply repeats from Genesis 1.28. Uh, the image of God, which is mentioned in 9.6, ties in with kind of Genesis 1.26. Regulations that protect, protect the life of man is similar to God's sign to Cain that protected him from murder. Jeremiah's mention of a covenant with the day and night is reminiscent of the sun to rule the day. Genesis 1, 16 and 18. I guess I didn't mention Jeremiah passage, but there's a passage in Jeremiah that talks about um, David's covenant being unbreakable, like the covenant he made with, uh, uh, with the day and the night. So I skipped over that. But humans having to work for food is linked to God's curse in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And all the above kind of illustrate that God is reinstating the natural order previous to the flood. So humanity is still in the image of God. And imprisoned to the curse of sin and death, seasons come and go as before, and theology of Genesis 1 through 4 still informs and guides our faith and life. And then uh, another important aspect of this common grace covenant is for the seed that was promised in 3.15 to come. Uh, the common grace covenant provides the arena for Christ to come. A champion offspring was promised to Adam and Eve. If the world was destroyed, the promise couldn't be fulfilled. Therefore, God's common grace uh, sustains and upholds the natural order so that Christ could be born of a woman and under the law in the fullness of time. And after his ascension, he still upholds uh, until the second advent. Upholds it now so that uh, many more can hear the gospel, but one day, without warning, uh, this will all come to an end. So, through Noah, we see a glimpse uh, of what this champion offspring would be like. Um, God will establish his covenant with a righteous man, again, Noah, um, instructed to build an ark, which are similarities in that ark to the temple. Uh, ark is the place where the people uh, in covenant with God are gathered. It's the one thing that will pass through judgment of God's wrath. Earth is turned back into a globe of water, but God remembers his covenant with his servant. The ruah, which is the spirit or the wind of God, blows over the waters. Dry land appears, and those in the ark uh, come out into the new earth. Noah offers sacrifices to God, and God blesses his people and gives a sign of the covenant, which is a commitment to never bring the waters again. 
again, we see Noah as a type of Christ. And again, a type foreshadows and gives uh, not only uh, differences or similarities, but also differences. Uh, we see these types. So the light of God's glory and grace is shed on Noah. It was kind of cast the shadow of Christ. So God establishes his covenant with, us, with his son, who is truly righteous and blameless. So Noah preached righteousness, and we see that in 2 Peter 2.5, but Christ preaches the kingdom of God, calling all people to enter by faith through him. Uh, Noah was faithful to build the ark and do all that was commanded of him. Christ was obedient in life and unto death, and declared that all the world the Father had given to him to do as it was finished. Noah was remembered in the ark, however, Jesus was forsaken upon the cross. All things outside this wooden ark died. Jesus died on the wooden cross, the covenant mediator who was cut off for the sins of the people. Noah left the empty ark and brought his family with him. Jesus left the empty tomb, securing his family's resurrection. It took years to build the ark that resembled this temple tabernacle, theologically at least. But the first gospel promise, Jesus, but from the first gospel promise, Jesus has been building the temple of God, which is the church. You see that in Ephesians 2. This ruah blew over the waters that brought death, but the ruah of God blows where it will, and the people are born of water and of spirit. Uh, Noah enters a new earth and brought sacrifices to God, but Christ is our sacrifice to bring us to a new heavens and a new earth. Noah and his family are given the sign of common grace that God wouldn't cut them off again. Christ's church is given the covenant sign of saving grace to remember that Jesus was cut off for the complete forgiveness of our sins. And Noah entered a new world still riddled with sin, but preserved by common grace. But Christ brings his people safely into a new earth where there is no sin or curse. So for the sake of his promise in Genesis 3.15, God makes a covenant with Noah, common grace, promising to hold his own sovereign hand back from plunging the world into destruction. So why is this doctrine important to the Christian life? Well, uh, one thing is that God will preserve the seasons, the marriage, childbirth, human society, until Christ returns. I mean, I don't... All these doomsday scenarios you might see, or even the movies you might see, but even some of the politics you see in the world today. I mean, if we're going to trust God, God says this is going. To, this 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 order is going to continue until I come back. So I don't. I'm not too worried about uh, about some of the doomsday uh, scenarios that come out. You know, asteroids possibly hitting Earth or whatever. I mean, if that's yeah, that's the end, then that's the end. But God says I'm, I'm going to preserve this world until that time. And I think another thing that's important to understand is uh, we're given this this great opportunity right now to to preach this gospel to people who are you know all around us. I mean, we're given this we got uh, righteous and unrighteous people all around us all the time. So I mean, we got opportunities with uh, with uh, um, well, what Jack's doing with the. Um, Yes, Christianity Explored, the Friday night things with uh, International Family Night and a host of other things. So, I mean, we got opportunities galore. And not only that, but where we work and who we interact with, uh, family, friends, etc. Um, we got to get this gospel out. So we're given this time, this time where God's withholding his wrath to get this gospel out to other people. And, you know, that's pretty much it. Uh, I'm... 10.35, I really try to slow down a little bit this time. <laughs> um, I get nervous and adrenaline pumps and I just go like crazy. But uh, um, that's really all I had. So uh, if there's any questions. Um, I'm not very good at questions. I get frustrated and all that stuff. But uh, I'll let you ask questions anyway and I'll, I'll defer it to the elders if they want to answer it. So, but.
Ah, Matt. I'll read it real quick. Um, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man, require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Matt, I'm going to say I have no clue. <laughs> All right. I, if I'm throwing that out to anybody else who wants to, uh, I, I didn't catch the question. Uh, uh, verse four it says, "You shall not eat blood with life that is blood." What does blood equal life mean? Is that what it's saying? Uh, Keith. I've heard people um, speak about how Genesis is corrective of interpretation. Okay. So there's, there's some corrective in that, in that uh, behavior, you know, orthodox, uh, orthopraxy, or whatever it's called, if your behavior falls in your doctrine, mm-hmm. and that this doctrine uh, does dictate on, on certain behaviors, the way that uh, you're being distinguished is that you're not going to be going around and drinking a bunch of blood. So that, that, that there is something different. Going on there now. There's some. And I think this is a bit of a stretch. There is allusion to the new covenant where Jesus talks about this is the new covenant. Hmm. I don't know about that. That might be a bit of a stretch. Maybe true. I just don't get it. Um, there you go. I don't personally drink a lot of blood. <laughs> So I'm going to kind of build off your thing that you asked about Jehovah Witnesses. Did you not? Okay. I don't know if anybody else wants to comment on that, but I I don't have any idea why they don't. Is it the blood transfusion thing? Is that what you're kind of talking about? Okay. And they think they're eating the blood then? or Okay. I I have no idea. I don't know anything about Jehovah Witnesses, unfortunately, so... but. John? I mean, Randy should be the one to speak as Old Testament scholar, but my memory is, is I think the Jewish people in the Old Testament did identify blood uh, symbolically and, and, and biologically as being the life force. Okay. I mean, we think, tend to think of, you know, uh, breathing or our sort of uh, cerebral yeah, activity, yeah. you know, as signifying life or the heart. For them, it's blood. Sure. 
So I, I think, I don't know if that's getting at Matt's question, but I think very simply uh, they, they saw that as signifying life. And therefore the prohibition not to eat it, is that... So when you lose your blood, you lose your life. Okay. And so the, the, it's symbolic of the, of the life. All right. Which would make sense, Hebrews, all sacrifices. Uh, Mary... Mary. Good. Thanks. William? All these verses are the verses of the Jehovah's Witnesses referred to in terms of reasons for not having a blood transfusion. But I think um, making that connection is, is difficult because, I mean, the Bible never talks about blood transfusions. <laughs> Maybe that's, that's technology, even blood typing. But I mean, blood transfusion without blood pressure would be completely unsafe. Now that we have that technology, um, I mean, obviously, if you sit down and draw someone's blood and eat it, that's really disrespectful of human life. I think that's what the focus of yeah. are. Whereas if you donate blood for the purpose of saving lives, and that blood is administered in a safe fashion, um, I think that that is uh, totally different from what the Bible is talking about here. Yeah, I think you're right. Thanks, William. Jerome, I think you were had your hand up too. Obviously, we are to respect human life, and there's a totally different 
reaction we have to that, you're not to shed human life blood at all, and it's to be required back of you if you do. If we shed an animal's blood, we take his life, uh, we have to separate that blood from the, the meat that we do eat. All right, thanks. Suggestions, I'm not sure where I'm going to fully stand on that myself. All right. Uh, any other questions? It's 1044, so i got to kind of wrap things up here. So if there's no other questions right now. All right, well... That was Noah's Covenant, and again, next time, we won't meet next week because of a congregational meeting, I believe, and, uh, well, we'll meet, but I I won't be teaching, and uh, then the week after that, we'll be covering uh, the Abrahamic Covenant, which is really the first installation of the Covenant of Grace, really, the more fully, full, full covenant, I guess you want to say, rather than a seed form at this time, so anyway, let's close in prayer, so. Father, thank you for your um, your mercy, your divine grace, Lord. Uh, you have every right, Lord, to uh, to wipe us out for breaking the covenant with you uh, works, but you establish a new covenant with us, Lord, and you give us grace. And I just thank you for uh, for withholding your wrath, so that we can uh, walk and live and breathe. Um, um, but also, Lord, that we have time right now to share your word, share your gospel with those around us. And I just pray, Lord, that you give us opportunities as, uh, as, you, uh, as you ask us to pray for opportunities in, I believe, Colossians, Lord. I just pray that you give us opportunities to witness those around us and to uh, be, a, be a witness to your love, your grace, your mercy. In your name I pray. Amen.